Uh, it's my honor to serve our students here. I, I love teenagers. Um, not in the creepy I love teenagers kind of way. Uh, I have to be careful saying that. Um, but uh, I, I love students, and, uh, and I love uh, pointing them to Jesus. That is, is my heart. And uh, I want to tell you that, uh, that the student ministries here at Horizon are strong. And not because of my involvement, but, but because we have great students here. Uh, we have students who love Jesus. And, uh, and you have supported them. And you have poured into student ministries. Uh, not only in the youth group here, but also through the schools. Uh, this is a church that believes in young people. And I want to thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's not every place that you go that, uh, that people are willing to let the facilities get trashed a little so that uh, young people can know Jesus. And, uh, and we do that from time to time. We have a good time. Uh, but kids are drawing closer to God in our services uh, through worship, through our life groups, through their personal prayer uh, time. They are, uh, they are building a foundation for the rest of their lives, and you have been a part of that. And I want to thank you for that, for that investment in our students. And I want to challenge you and encourage you to continue to invest in our students. They need, whether they tell you or not, they need adults to model for them uh, what a Christ-like life looks like. They need you. They need your example, and they need your investment in their lives. And so I want to challenge you to, uh, to invest in our young people. They're worth it. And, uh, and I love them, and I, I know you do as well. So thank you for giving me the, the opportunity to serve them. Obviously, I'm not Pastor Stan. Uh, he is better looking than I am and funnier than I am. Um, and so, uh, so I apologize in advance for that. Uh, I'm also not continuing the series that he started a couple weeks ago called Dancing with David, which is on the, the front of your bulletins. Uh, I'm going to be going a different direction this morning. Uh, I, I did present, uh, kind of auditioned my material for Pastor Stan, told him I'd be willing to teach on Dancing with David, and so I recorded a little video for him to give a, you know, an idea of what uh, I would be speaking on, what I'd be doing. And uh, after watching the video, he said, you know what, I think you should probably go a different direction. Um, and so, so I, I'll be going a different direction this morning, but I did save the video for you to, uh, to look at. So, uh, this is my Dancing with David audition video. I think we can all be glad that I went a different route this morning. <laughs> that's, that's not what I'll be doing this morning. Um, this morning, I want to talk to you about uh, epic fail. Uh, if you're not familiar with the term, it's a phrase used online a lot for when somebody messes up. Uh, it might be a misspelling on a church sign. Maybe you've seen signs like that before where uh, they've, they've misspelled something or unintentionally said something they didn't mean to. Uh, it might be a, a crash it might be somebody who did something inadvertently. Um, I think America's Funniest Home Videos invented the epic fail. Because um, all those videos, you know, you got a kid with a wiffle, bat, wiffle ball bat and dad with a camera. And you know what's coming next. The epic fail is coming next. Uh, and, uh, and so that's what I want to talk to you about this morning is failure and, uh, and the epic fail. You know what? 
You know what my favorite part of that video was? I have to t- <laughs> it's embarrassing. Um, look at this. I, I pulled a shot. See the cardboard that I put up over the window of the door to my office? <laughs> I thought I added a classy touch. Um, I, I put the cardboard up so that nobody in the office would see me recording that video because <laughs> I was embarrassed. And now here I am showing it to all of you, and it's, it's streaming on the website. So awesome. Nice. That cardboard. There's not enough cardboard in the world to cover my shame. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, epic fail is what we're talking about this morning, uh, and I think we're going to need Jesus' help. So let's, uh, let's pray. God, thank you for this day that you've made. God, thank you for all the days that have led up to this day. God, thank you for our successes and our victories that we've experienced so far. God, thank you this morning for our failures. God, we ask you to bring beauty out of the ashes. Help us to embrace our failure, to learn from mistakes, God and to overcome our past. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about failure, and we're going to look at a couple of guys in the the, uh, Gospels that are contrast in how to respond to failure. Uh, The first thing I want you to know this morning is that you failed, but you are not a failure. And that's an important distinction. I failed, but I am not a failure. And that may sound like just semantics to you, but it's an important distinction. I think if you've been around church for any length of time, you may be comfortable with the idea that all of us have failed. We're all sinners. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Not a person in this room, myself included, is worthy of of being a Christian, of being a Christ follower. None of us are truly living up to the standard of holiness that God has set for us. It's impossible. We can't do it. We fail. And every day I set out to be a little bit more Christ-like. And every day I fail at being Christ-like. I can't possibly earn my way. I'm not good enough. We all fail. But that doesn't make us failures. We've all missed the mark. But sometimes, sometimes that, that failure can be the hang-up that causes our life to get a little bit off the rails. Sometimes when we fail... That failure is so severe, and it implants itself so firmly in our hearts and in our minds that we don't really move on from that failure. We live in this world of beating ourselves up because of our failure, because we're not good enough. We don't feel worthy enough. We beat ourselves up about it. I want you to think about for a moment what the world would be like if some of these famous failures had stopped after their first or second or third failure. In 1985, after inventing the personal computer and and following it up with the Macintosh, Steve Jobs was fired from Apple Computer. That is an epic fail right there. Firing Steve Jobs, he's since come back to the company and and, uh, revived the company, but, uh, but he was run out of Apple Computer. Imagine what would have happened if he just quit at that moment. If, if he didn't go on to, a, uh, to start another computer company, he bought a little company called Pixar uh, that ended up making some of the best uh, films that, that are made today. He's a, a huge success by all worldly standards. But what if he had just stopped because he had failed at Apple back in 1985? In 1921, Walt Disney founded Laughograms. And maybe you've never heard of Laughograms, but that was Walt Disney's first studio. And he hired his friends and he paid them well. 
but he had a hard time managing the company's finances. And after just a couple years, the debts mounted up and Laffagrams filed for bankruptcy. Walt moved to Hollywood, got married, and, and uh, created a new character called Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And, uh, and Oswald was pretty popular and was making Disney some decent money at this time. And Walt went out to New York City for a meeting with the distributor of the cartoon. And the distributor uh, wanted more money for Oswald. And while Walt was negotiating in New York City, the distributor hired away most of Walt's animators by offering them more money. And he stole the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Once again, Walt Disney was faced with failure. No company, no character that he could draw any longer. He got on a train. And just before he did, he sent a telegraph to his brother who ran the finances of the company to tell him what had happened. And he said, don't worry, it'll all be okay. And he got on the train and on the train he started sketching. He could have been content with failing, with, well, I gave it a shot. I gave it my best effort, but now I've got to find a real job and not draw cartoons anymore. And instead, on that train, he started sketching a character called Mortimer. And his wife looked at the uh, cute little guy that he had drawn, and, he, and she told him, that doesn't look like a Mortimer. That's a pretty formal name. Why don't you call him Mickey instead? And Mickey Mouse was born, and an empire was built. But what if Walt had quit? What if he had stopped after his first or his second failure? What would the world look like today? Thomas Edison, the great inventor, said, if I, had, if I find 10,000 ways something won't work, I haven't failed. I'm not discouraged because every wrong attempt discarded is another step forward. I've found at least 10,000 ways to fail in my life. And yet each one of those has pointed me a different direction. Each one of those has made me the person I am today. And I love Thomas Edison's uh, view on failure. He registered 1,093 patents, including the light bulb, the phonograph, the motion picture camera. But one night in 1914, his factory in New Jersey burned to the ground. It was full of his latest inventions and his life's work. And he stood there watching it go up in flames and his son was next to him. And his son was hurting for his dad who had just lost everything. The, the building and all of its contents were valued at about $2 million in, in 1914. It was insured for about $238,000. He lost everything. And as they watched it go up in flames, Thomas Edison turned to his son and said, Where's your mother? Find her. Bring her here. She will never see anything like this as long as she lives. What a great view. As, as everything's going up in flames, he's like, hey, get some marshmallows. Let's... He's amazed by the size of the fire. He's not daunted by the loss of his work. The next morning in the still smoldering ruins, he said, there is great value in disaster. All our mistakes are burned up. Thank God we can start anew. Thank God we can start anew, huh? I'm so glad that my mistakes are thrown into a sea of forgetfulness when I chose Jesus. When I asked him to forgive me, his blood covers my sin. He doesn't see those things any longer. 
Three weeks after the fire, Edison delivered the very first phonograph. Resiliency, bouncing back from failure. He said, many of life's failures are people who do not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. Michael Jordan may be the greatest basketball player of all time. Perhaps you remember this commercial. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. Failure can be why we succeed. Our failures can make us the people God wants us to be. Not that God intended for those failures to happen, but if we learn from them, if we draw closer to him through those failures, he can use them to make us the people he wants us to be. It's hard to imagine the world today without the contributions of some of these, these huge failures. Greater than the stories of these though, are the stories and the accounts that we find in the Bible of so many failures. Everyone in the Bible that, that is a hero that we heard about in our Sunday school classes has these giant character flaws and these massive failings. Moses was a stutterer, and worse, he was a murderer. David was a murderer, and he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Samson was disobedient and allowed Delilah to manipulate him, and she stole his power. Jonah was disobedient and ended up in the belly of a whale. Saul imprisoned and persecuted Christians and held the coats of those who stoned Stephen. These are massive failures. These are beyond just uh, missing a shot in basketball. These are, are huge failures, and yet God turned them into victories. Over and over we read about these failures and how God takes them from failure to victory. And the, the great thing is that that same God is alive and at work in us today. That same God is here today to meet you where you're at. His promises are true for us today. We've failed, but we are not failures. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You failed, but it's not the end. God has a hope and a future for you still today. You may be going through some of the things that feel like the end. The failures you are experiencing, life that you are experiencing, may feel like there is no hope. Where do you go from here? How do you rebuild from here? And yet God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good, plans to prosper you and not harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. These two failures in the Gospels remind us of the effect that failure can have on a life. Judas was a disciple and a follower of Jesus, walked with Jesus, stayed with Jesus, saw the miracles that Jesus did. Judas was every bit the disciple that the other disciples were. Jesus had called Judas to follow him. And yet Judas sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, betrayed him. That was an epic fail. I want to look at Judas' response to his failure 
in Matthew 27, verse 5, or verse 3, it says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. So he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests and the elders. I have sinned, he declared, for I have betrayed an innocent man. What do we care, they retorted. That's your problem. Then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple and went out and hanged himself. Judas' failure defined who he was. Today, we don't really see little kids running around named Judas. Parents name their kids Matthew or John or Peter or James. Nobody's really naming their kids Judas these days. Judas is known as a backstabber, a betrayer. His name is synonymous with failure. Judas failed, but his life didn't have to be a failure. See, I think that Judas misunderstood or, or missed God's grace. The fact that though he had failed epically, Jesus could still forgive him. That his life didn't have to be over. That that failure didn't have to define him. He could have recovered from it. Instead, he threw in the towel and he quit. He couldn't take it any longer. His failure defined him. But I don't think he understood the forgiveness that Jesus offers. The restoration that is available to him. Failure doesn't have to define you. And you might be in a terrible cycle of self-loathing and, and failure. And you may feel like there's no way out. This economy has hurt so many people. Lost jobs, businesses failed, homes lost. Those failures don't have to define you. It's not the end. You may be struggling in your marriage or in a friendship and relationship. And it may seem like there's no way out, that there's no hope. There's so much loss and grief and heaviness on your heart. God wants you to know that it's, it's not the end. A failure doesn't have to define you. I hope that this would be a place where people are not defined by their failures. I would hope that this is a place where we can love on people who have failed but are not failures. I think our society tends to build people up. We want perfection. We like to see people that are perfect. Look at any magazine cover and you see the airbrush models on there that don't represent anything based in reality. And it says that our culture wants this vision of perfection that is unattainable. I watch baseball, I'm watching the World Series and cheering for my Giants, and, and I want every pitch to be perfect. These guys are throwing 100 miles an hour, 90 feet away, to a target about this big, and when they miss by an inch or two, I'm yelling at the TV. I want perfection out of these guys. In baseball, if you hit three out of ten times, you're in the Hall of Fame. They fail more often than they don't. And yet when my Giants strike out, I want to take the bat and go up to bat for them. <laughs> Because I could do better than that, right? <laughs> we want perfection. And we build people up. And we expect them to be perfect. People like Britney Spears or Tiger Woods who have been built up in the world's eyes. And then when they fail, we shake our fingers at them. And we condemn them. And we label them a failure. I would hope that this church would be a church that would love people who have failed. But never label somebody a failure. It's one of the things I love 
about student ministry is that uh, these young people are learning life. And they're going through and they're discovering God and how God works in their lives. And they make mistakes all along the way. And it can get frustrating at times to watch a young person make the same mistake over and over again. But what keeps me hopeful is that these students will someday be pastors, missionaries, doctors, teachers. These students will be Paul and Timothy. I see in these students and even in their failures what they can become. And so when they mess up, when they make mistakes, it doesn't define them. It's an opportunity for growth. I hope that this church will be a church that will allow people to grow and to fail and that will love people through those times because none of us are perfect. I've messed up. This church has welcomed me, a failure, somebody who has failed. I pray that you'll do that for others. Judas only saw the end. He couldn't get over it. Let's help people to see that it's not the end, that just because they failed, they are not failures. There is a hope and a future for them. If there's only one thing you walk away with today, I hope it's this, that your failure doesn't determine your future. Your failure doesn't determine your future. God is not done with you yet. The second thing this morning Falling on your face is still moving forward. It's a great quote my youth pastor used to tell me all the time. He quoted his dad. And uh, it's kind of become one of my mottos because I fall on my face an awful lot. I, uh, I was in sixth grade and uh, sixth grade boys are kind of dumb. I don't know if you know this about sixth grade boys. But uh, uh, sorry sixth graders if you're in here. Um, but Literally, their brain hasn't finished forming yet. So they're just, they're kind of dumb as rocks at times. And, and I was one of those sixth grade boys once and often still am. Um, and in sixth grade, uh, I thought there was this girl named Wendy Walker that was really cute. And uh, I really liked Wendy Walker. She didn't know I existed. And, uh, and so after school, uh, I just did dumb things because I was a dumb sixth grade boy and I, I would go out and get on my bike as soon as school was out and we would ride as fast as I could. Uh, my friend Anthony and I would ride about a block out of the school and then hide in a bush or uh, behind a mailbox or anywhere we could and, uh, and I'd hide so that I could spy on Wendy Walker as she walked by with her friends. And so we'd sit there and like listen to what, was she talking about me? She didn't even know I existed. But I'm sitting there like trying to just get close to Wendy because I didn't know how to talk to a girl. And, uh, and so one day I had detention and I had to stay after school 10 minutes. This threw off my plans to, uh, to spy on Wendy because now I, had, I was 10 minutes behind on schedule. So I got out of class after detention, and I ran to the, to the bike racks, and I got my bike, and Anthony was waiting for me, and we hustled on our bikes, had to go so much faster to try to get ahead of Wendy. And uh, I didn't see that there was a large rock in front of me. And I'm going as fast as I can on my bike, and I hit that rock, and my handlebars turned sideways, and I went up over the handlebars, and I landed on the rock that I, I, I tripped on. And uh, the rock landed on my arm, and it cut my arm pretty badly. Uh, I was bleeding like crazy, and, uh, and I stood up kind of in shock, because uh, there's all this blood, and I, I didn't even know what happened. It happened so quickly. 
I stood up and standing right in front of me was Wendy Walker. And she's looking at me, kind of shocked at what happened. And, uh, and I kind of pulled myself together. I looked at my arm and I looked at Wendy Walker and I said, are you okay? <laughs> Falling on your face is still moving forward. I moved forward a little bit that day. Uh, that was the last day I spied on Wendy Walker. Um, I learned a lesson, and I moved on, and I've got the scar on my arm to prove it. <sighs> falling on your face is still moving forward. I, I hate failing. I'm not a fan of failure. In fact, if I think there's any chance at all that, uh, that I'm not going to be successful at something, I'd rather not do it than try it and fail. Uh, that's just my personality. I tend to think of myself as a perfectionist. Um, I'm not a perfectionist. I don't do anything perfect. But uh, in my life, I tend to uh, set the bar really high. And if I can't hit that, then I'm mad at myself for, for falling short or I don't do it at all. That just tends to be my personality. Maybe some of you can relate to that. I hate failing and I don't set out to do anything to fail. But in my life, I've learned this lesson that falling on your face is still moving forward. And so when I do fail, when I do mess up, I try to do it in a way that doesn't stall me out and doesn't set me back. But instead, it propels me forward. That I learn from my mistakes that 10,000 failures does not make me a failure. It just shows me 10,000 ways not to do it again. You may be familiar with the story of Josh Hamilton, the MVP for the Texas Rangers playing in the World Series right now. He's the center fielder, and in 1999, he came uh, out of high school, one of the top-rated baseball prospects. He was in a car accident that severely hurt his back, and he had to take some time off of baseball. And having lots of free time now on his hands, Josh started hanging out with some of the wrong people in some tattoo parlors, and then in strip clubs. And he started drinking pretty heavily. And drinking turned into cocaine use, which turned into crack use. And before he knew it, Josh had blown his $4 million signing bonus. He lost his wife. His life was in ruins. Josh began to clean his life up in 2005, after being away from baseball for several years, he repaired his relationship with his wife. Somebody led him back to Jesus and gave him another chance. And he credits God with saving his life and giving him a second chance in baseball and in his life. In 2007, Josh Hamilton was in spring training with the Cincinnati Reds. In 2008, in the home run derby, Josh Hamilton set a record for 28 home runs in the first round of the Home Run Derby. I was watching it on TV that night and was impressed not only by this slugger because he was just belting out these home runs. It was unbelievable to watch this guy, one hit after another, just banging him out of the ballpark. It was incredible to watch, but every time they talked about Josh Hamilton, he mentioned Jesus every time. Every time he talked about how Jesus saved his life, how Jesus repaired his marriage, how Jesus saved him from drugs and alcohol, it wasn't just, I thank God for this opportunity. He talked about Jesus turning his life around. 
And it was such a great testimony on national TV to watch this guy lift up Jesus and talk about his failures with drugs and how Jesus gave him a second chance. But in January of 2009, after all of this, after his testimony was all over TV, he was on Christian magazine covers, he was splashed all all about as a hero. In 2009, Josh Hamilton went into a bar and he had a drink. And then he had another And many drinks and embarrassing photos later, Josh Hamilton had fallen off the wagon again. His public testimony of sobriety and his faith in Jesus and the restoration that Jesus had done in his life took a hit. People began mocking him for what he had said because now he had failed. But failure after failure, Hamilton has continued to move forward through those failures. This year, he redoubled his efforts to stay sober and stepped up the accountability in his life to ensure that he doesn't fall that way again. The Rangers hired a coach that travels with him and stays in his hotel room with him. He is, Josh has chosen not to carry much cash with him so that he can't buy drugs or, or alcohol. His wife, when they're at home games, his wife literally follows him home from the ballpark to make sure that he doesn't get sidetracked. That's not because... He's weak, but because he's chosen to not let himself fall that way again. On uh, the day that the Texas Rangers won the American League West, they were playing the Oakland A's at Oakland Coliseum. And the team celebrated as they always do by uh, opening up champagne bottles and beer cans and spraying each other in the locker room. And it's a festive sight And Josh Hamilton, their MVP, wasn't in the locker room because he didn't want to be tempted by the alcohol that was in the room. He didn't want to cause, have any reason to stumble. And I don't think it was any coincidence that that day at Oakland Coliseum was their faith day where they invite churches to come. And after the the game, Donnie Moore, who's been here and spoken, Donnie Moore stood up on top of the dugout and preached a sermon to anybody that would stay after the game. And he invited several players to share their testimony. And Josh Hamilton, while everybody was celebrating in the locker room, Josh Hamilton told his story to the people assembled at the Oakland Coliseum. He told about how God had restored him and gave him another chance. I love what he said about his relapse. He said, maybe this will show people that if they are recovering and make a mistake, it's not the end of the world. You can get back on the right track. Hopefully I can use God's glory to show that I do have struggles. This just lets me know that I need Christ more than ever. See, Josh Hamilton isn't the perfect example. He's failed, just as we all have. But maybe my life and your life and Josh Hamilton's life can show God's glory that we need him more than ever. That we struggle and we fall and we fail. And yet God is so gracious to lift us up. Jesus is able to forgive us for everything. All of us have failed, but failure is not the end. You can get back on the right track. Falling on your face is still moving forward. So at the same time that Judas betrayed Jesus, during the same night, Peter would make a similar failure. He failed when he denied knowing Jesus. Peter, just hours earlier, declared that he would never deny Jesus. 
he pulled a sword on a guy and cut off a guy's ear in defense of Jesus. And then, just hours later, couldn't admit knowing Jesus to a little girl that would ask him. I want to look at that passage in Mark chapter 14. It says, Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, You were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the entryway. Just then a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling others, This man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted, Jesus, or confronted Peter and said, You must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You will deny three times that you even know me. And he broke down and wept. The key to Peter's failure is his response to it. Peter was broken and he wept over his failure. One translation says that he wept bitterly. This is a man who was broken because he hurt his friend. Jesus believed in him and Peter was broken over his failure. But Peter kept moving forward. Unlike Judas who that was the end of his story. He failed and couldn't overcome that failure, that guilt, that shame. Peter kept moving forward. I like the famous quote from Winston Churchill that says, if you're going through hell, keep going. <laughs> Some of you might be able to relate to that this morning. You feel like you're in the worst spot of your life. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't quit. God's not finished writing your story yet. Peter kept going. So the third thing this morning is, what do you do with what happens to you? Aldous Huxley, the author, says, experience is not what happens to you. Experience is what you do with what happens to you. What do you do with what happens to you? Or maybe better phrase is, what do you do with what you've done? This Danish saying says, life is not simply holding a good hand. Life is playing a poor hand well. How are you going to play the cards that you've been dealt? Maybe you've dealt the cards to yourself. And all the, all the blame is squarely on your shoulders. You've failed. You've made mistakes. Your life is in ruin. What do you do now? How do you respond to failure? A good story has conflict and even failure because it propels the character forward. I love the story of David and Goliath because he's up against insurmountable odds. There's no way David can beat Goliath. And yet through God he does. We like movies like Rocky because there's no way that this little guy is going to take out Mr. T, and yet he does. And, and just when you think it's all over, Rocky comes through. We like these stories, but they have conflict. Sometimes conflict helps us move our lives forward. Sometimes the failures we're experiencing, though we all wish we could avoid those failures, sometimes those very failures are the things that will move us forward in our lives. Sometimes it's through mistakes and pain that we learn and we navigate through life. And God takes us to another place because of what we learn through those experiences. What do you do 
what do you do with what happens to you? Your life is telling a story. And you may be down and out this morning. You may be up against insurmountable odds. The question isn't what's happened to you or what you've done, but what are you going to do next? How can God take where you're at and take you to the next level? You have a hope and a future in Jesus, and he's not done writing your story. Let's go back and look at what happens with Peter's life next. Peter's in ruins after failing so epically. But he continues hanging out with the disciples, and they're out fishing one night, and Jesus is out on the shore. He's risen from the dead, and, and uh, he's there, and they see him, and you can imagine how Peter must have felt. Can you imagine the failure and the guilt that he must have carried with him? And he comes into shore, and it says in John chapter 21, verse 15, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, picture this for a minute. They're having breakfast together, all the disciples and Jesus, and there's this elephant in the room, right? Or on the beach, and the elephant is that Peter says he doesn't know Jesus, and here's Jesus sitting with him. Maybe you've been in a social situation like that where you've got this elephant that everybody knows is there, but nobody's talking about it, and it's awkward, and it's difficult. And Peter is feeling this tremendous guilt, I'm sure, for what he had done. And he sits there eating breakfast with Jesus, and then after, Jesus, or after breakfast, Jesus asks him, hey, do you love me? Man, can you imagine the response? Can you imagine what, what, what was going on inside of Peter's heart at that moment? Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Jesus knew that Peter loved him, but that he had failed. I think it's interesting here that Peter had denied knowing Jesus three times, and three times Jesus asks him, do you love me? Jesus is restoring Peter during this moment. He's letting him know that he's forgiven that he's okay, that God still has a plan for his life. Because you may remember in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus said, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. This was a promise that after Jesus was gone, Peter would be the foundation of the church. God would use Peter to do incredible things to build the church in the early days. And so as Jesus is telling Peter, feed my sheep, He's restoring him and giving him back the plan and the hope that he had originally given him. He's telling him, your life isn't over. This isn't the end. You can still do what I have planned for you to do. This isn't the end. Feed my sheep. This morning, though we have failed, we are not failures. Though we've messed up and some of this stuff may feel like it's the end, God still has a plan for you. We read earlier this morning, Jeremiah 29, 11. God has a hope and a future for you. Plans for good. Those plans, regardless of our failures, are still there 
still available to you today if you'll grab a hold of the grace that God offers. See, none of us are perfect and we're gonna make mistakes. I'm gonna continue to fail and God is still writing my story. But he has so much grace available to us that even though we fail, he still chooses to love us. He still chooses to use us to bless others. He still chooses us to be his hands and feet. A few days after Jesus and Peter walked on the beach and Jesus restored Peter's hope and his future, a large crowd gathered outside of an upper room where the disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised. And the Holy Spirit came in that room and filled them and empowered them. You may remember reading about the the tongues of fire that appeared miraculously above their heads and they spoke in other tongues. Here are these, these Jewish men speaking in languages foreign to them and people had gathered around outside because they heard the commotion and they saw what was going on as the Holy Spirit came upon this place and they're insisting that these guys are drunk, that there's something wrong with these guys. And this large crowd gathered outside to see what was going on. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, it says, Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd. I think this is just so interesting because just a few days earlier, a couple months maybe, Peter couldn't admit to knowing Jesus to a little girl, to a servant girl. Couldn't confess to even being a friend of Jesus. And here he is now transformed by God's grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit. He stands up and he shouts to people and proclaims this message in Acts chapter 2. And in verse 41, it says, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. 3,000 people baptized and came to know Jesus that day because Peter was transformed because he didn't let his failures define who he would become. God's grace transformed his life. This is a contrast in how to respond to failure. Judas gave up. Peter moved forward. I don't believe for a moment that Peter forgot his failure. See, I don't think that forgiveness means that you forget all the time. We, we say that phrase a lot, forgive and forget, and there's some validity to it. However, some of these failures leave marks on us for the rest of our lives. There's a difference between letting those marks define who we are and drive who we are and remembering them for the lessons we can learn from them. Peter probably never forgot his failure. I can't imagine that, that he didn't go to his, his death remembering that night that he failed Jesus. But I would guess every time he thought about his failure. Every time he looked at the scars from those wounds in his heart, he also remembered Jesus restoring him, giving him a second chance. I look at the scars in my life and how many times I thought at the, in the moment of that pain that it was the end, that God could never use me, God could never love me, I wasn't good enough because of what I had done. There were times I thought of throwing in the towel and quitting. And I look at those scars and they don't remind me any longer of the pain that I felt. They remind me of God's grace, how he saved me, how he continues to shape me in the person he wants me to be, 
how he continues to use a messed up person like me. I want to encourage you this morning that your failure doesn't define your future. You failed, but you are not a failure. Falling on your face is still moving forward. The real question is, what are you going to do with what's happened? It's all in the past now. What are you going to do with it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun.